Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hi, I'm Roy Jones, and I'm here with the Rainmaking Fundraising Podcast with my friend, Andrew Olson. Andrew, good to have you today. Hey, Roy, good to be here today. I'm really excited about this conversation. We're, we've got a, a special treat in this discussion today. Well, I am particularly um, excited uh, about hearing from our friend Tom Kilgannon, the president of Freedom Alliance. Uh, Freedom Alliance, uh, uh, lots of folks were very familiar with it a few years ago when it was founded by uh, Colonel Oliver North. And, uh, and Tom is now the president, doing amazing work. Um, of course, it's an educational charitable organization that honors and supports America's military heroes. Um, they also advocate for a strong national defense and Freedom Alliance um, saves lives and military mar- marriages by helping provide recreational activities as well as rehabilitation activities uh, to combat wounded heroes, people that literally sacrifice their, their families, their lives, um, and their sacred honor, as the, as, as, as the, as the records say, uh, defending this country and defending our freedom and defending the things that we all believe in. Uh, the organization helps troops overcome the wounds of war by providing all-terrain wheelchairs to amputees, donating mortgage-free homes to combat wounded veterans, uh, shipping care packages to troops deployed overseas, among many other projects. Today, Tom's going to be announcing some big news um, about just where they're at in their college scholarship program. So with that, Tom, I'm going to kind of pitch it to you and let you talk a little bit about Freedom Alliance and and then um, tell us about where you're at with with your college scholarship program. It's just, I can't tell you how excited I am. Sure. Thanks, Roy. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on and want to thank you all for the great work that you do and, you know, inspiring people to uh, get into the field of uh, fundraising and and philanthropy and helping uh, Americans direct their generosity toward worthy causes. And Freedom Alliance is uh, is an organization that has benefited a great deal from uh, the patriotic generosity of Americans, uh, particularly over the last 20 years. And uh, what we have done with that support, Roy, is uh, really used it to help out military families. And we do that in a variety of ways. Um, We are helping combat veterans and military families more broadly. Uh, We we are providing recreational rehab to combat veterans, helping them to overcome the wounds of war, both physical and emotional. And right now we're in a stage where we're really working uh, with veterans on that emotional aspect. The, um, the moral injuries or emotional injuries that are associated with, with combat. And what that requires is getting them in the company of other veterans, getting them into 
um, really relaxing, beautiful spaces for hunting and fishing trips and creating an environment in which they can talk and, and confide in one another, help one another out, be mentors to one another. And you want to have them in the company of other veterans because they've been there, done that, as they say. Uh, so that's a big part of what we're doing. Also, as you mentioned, we are providing them uh, with instruments to help them with their mobility, vehicles, all-terrain wheelchairs, uh, and other things like that. We have done a few mortgage-free homes, and uh, we're just trying to help out where we can. Now, that's really for the, for the veteran. Uh, the other part of what we're doing is helping out the family. And we have a scholarship program in which we give college scholarships to the sons and daughters of military heroes, those that have either lost their life or been severely injured in military service. And that is a longstanding program that goes back uh, to the start of the organization Freedom Alliance. And uh, But here in the last 20 years, uh, since 9-11, I'm proud to announce and I'm, and I'm uh, thankful for having me on to let your, your audience know that since 9-11, Freedom Alliance has awarded more than $20 million in college scholarships. And each of those scholarships goes to the a child of a military hero. And we do it for two reasons. First and the most obvious is to help with the practical costs of a college education. But Roy, each of those scholarships represents a hero. And it is to remind that child of that hero that their parents' sacrifice will never be forgotten by a grateful nation. And we can only do that with the help and support of uh, great people who contribute their resources to us. Wow. Wow. $20 million. That's just amazing. Any idea how many young people that would have helped? I won't hold you to the number if you want to throw up a guess. <laughs> no, that, that is, uh, yeah, that's the amount that has been awarded. So that has gone to more than 2,000 individual students. And it has funded uh, about uh, seven or 8,000 scholarships. So you have 2,000 wow. students who have received multiple scholarships. Because if a, if a student is coming to us in their freshman year, we will renew that scholarship for four years as long as they're keeping up the grades. Gotcha. Very good. Wow, that is exciting. And uh, coming from um, the background and actually worked at Liberty University a number of years, and that just touches my heart to see what you're doing to help young people with this. You know, the first question that jumps in my head before we get to some of the tactical questions, um, um, I think so many Americans just assume that the government's already doing this. Talk, talk to me about government funding and the help that veterans get and, and how what you do is so needed. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think over the last 20 years, we have made some progress, but uh, government is not doing enough for our military families and for our veterans. If you go back to 2001, uh, there was, uh, there's something called a, a death gratuity, which is you have a, a service member who dies in the service of their nation. And back in 2001, they received a payment from the federal government. Uh, and that payment was, I believe at the time, around $12,000. Now, through the work of organizations like Freedom Alliance and so many others who uh, raised this issue, and as we started having uh, service members losing their lives in Afghanistan and Iraq, that death gratuity increased uh, to, I believe it's now $100,000. Um, so we have made progress there. On the... Um, 
on the issue of funding for college. And Roy, you know how important a college education is uh, in this day and age uh, and how expensive it has become. Uh, the, uh, the GI Bill, of course, uh, was there. It was expanded at different times and it is helping in some instances, but mostly for those who lose their lives. Now the Freedom Alliance program not only helps to fund those students, but uh, we will also help students who've had a parent who is severely wounded. And uh-huh, uh, that's the difference. Uh-huh. And so that um, that really opens the aperture, if you will, to uh, the need that is out there because you have uh, you have about seven thousand service members who lost their lives in Afghanistan or Iraq, but you've got tens of thousands who were severely wounded that would uh, meet the criteria for our scholarship. And each of their kids, uh, if they choose to go to college, would be eligible. Wow. Wow. That is um, pretty amazing. And and just, uh, I'm still kind of taken back at over 2,000 young people you know, whose lives have been changed forever because of Freedom Alliance. So that's, that is just amazing. Well, I do want to talk just a minute, and we've got lots of fundraising professionals from all over the country that that download this podcast and listen to us regularly. Talk about um, um, just some of the techniques that you use to raise $20 million. That's not an easy task. No, it, it, uh, it certainly isn't, but it, it's made a whole lot easier when you have uh, very generous and gracious supporters behind you. And you know, early uh, in, in this process, our, our scholarship program in uh, 1999 had two recipients. We had two students who were receiving scholarships from us. And then in uh, 2001, we had 12 students and it has just grown from there. But in 2001, obviously when you had the attacks of 9-11, that's when uh, the environment uh, became a whole lot easier to raise money because people saw what was going on. Uh, they knew the kinds of sacrifices that were going to be made, and they wanted to be able to help. So we had um, some big events at that time and capitalized on the emotion that was taking place in the public. And that really uh, stayed with us for quite a few years because we've been at war for 20 years. And uh, the uh, the emotion just uh, stayed with us for, for a real long time, 15, 18 years uh, it is a challenge reminding people that there still is a great need when they don't see the war on the headlines uh, every day. But uh, to get to your your question, Roy, uh, going back, we used we used events and uh, gained a whole lot of supporters in those early years. I'd say from 2001 through 2007 or eight, um, we we pulled in tens of thousands of new supporters, and then we we did what we should do, which is take care of them, help them to understand how their investment in the organization is helping others, uh, show them how it is is helping, introduce them to the recipients of uh, their investment, and let them see just what uh, an amazing impact it is happening. So when you do that, uh, you get them to continue their giving on an annual basis, to increase their giving on an annual basis, and you just keep uh, repeating the cycle. Um, it's really, um, it's the golden rule uh, applied to fundraising, do on to others. If you make a, a contribution to an organization, you'll want to know what that organization did with it and how it impacted uh, the mission. 
And that's really what we try to do. Tom, I've got a question for you around the donors that support you. What you said about the 2001 to 2008 time period makes a lot of sense. Have you seen a significant difference in the type of person that supports the organization today versus those who started with you early on in the organization? Um, we're, we are uh, supported by uh, largely conservative, uh, patriotic, military-supporting type of a donor. Uh, and I think that has been pretty consistent uh, throughout the 20 years. But in that time frame, Andrew, of, say, 2001 to 2008, uh, there were a lot more people who, who supported us that, that weren't necessarily of that um, uh, conservative nature. There was, um, there was a whole lot more people that really just wanted to help out the cause. The, the impact of 9-11 uh, remained raw for quite a, a long period of time. Uh, the, the, the war was on the front pages. Uh, if you remember, we had uh, something, something relatively new, which was the embedding of reporters into combat units. And yeah. so they were, um, that allowed the story to remain on cable news and network news uh, for uh, a whole lot longer and a whole lot more visible than previous wars in our country's history. So people knew what was going on. They saw the sacrifice and they really wanted to, uh, to dig deep. And the economy was doing very well in uh, those years. And if you remember in say 2006, 2007, um, there, was, uh, there were folks who just really uh, were benefiting a great deal from uh, gains in the market and wanted to uh, give it to a good cause. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, talk to me about what do you think about the demographics? Has that changed any, Tom? Are, are donors any younger? Or, or, or are they old people like me? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we've, um, we've got a pretty good mix. Of, when, you know, when it comes to like our, our direct response, um, sometimes you have people say to you, well, you know, your, your average donor is, is 70 years old and you got to find younger donors. Uh, and I say, well, that's true. In 2021, our average donor is 70 years old, but in 1995, our average donor was 70 years old. It's it's just the way it it always is, right? Might be where the money is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what you do have to do is identify those those younger folks, let them see what you're doing, uh, have them contribute in ways that is feasible for them at that stage of their life when they're in their uh, say their you know mid 30s to mid 50s, and uh, and help them embrace the cause. And so uh, that's something that we try to do and, and, and form a habit of, of giving. And as their situation allows, that giving will increase over time, as long as the organization is doing its job and um, showing that there, the need still exists and the, um, and the investment is, putting, is, is being well spent. How, I want to go back to events, events for just a minute. Um, talk to me about the kinds of events you, you've been doing. And, of course, you mentioned something, Tom, that is so important, and that's then cultivating those event-acquired donors and getting them to make a second gift. Um, so often we see in the industry 
Um, a lot of event donors can be, you know, one and done donors. They, they participate in that one activity and then they're gone. Talk to me about how you got them, maybe the, the kind of events you were doing and then, and then how you got them to renew. Well, in the uh, in the early years, it was it was big events. We used um, we used concerts, m- musical concerts, and we had a, a patriotic uh, lineup of Christian artists, and um, you know filled small arenas and got people out that way, uh, introduced them to the program and how it would work, and they became supporters uh, through that way. Then what we did in the in the stewardship phase is to use smaller and more intimate events. So uh, you'd have receptions across the country where it'd be, uh, you'd go dozens of supporters, um, maybe small dinners that would have 100 or 200 people. And you'd really be able to spend a whole lot more time with your supporters and help them to um, understand the cause a little bit better, ask questions. You know, Roy, particularly when it comes to the scholarship program, people have a lot of uh, questions if they're investing in it. Um, you know, how, how do you select the students and how do you decide who gets it and what's the criteria and how are the payments made and all kinds of things like that. So you wanna make yourself available to your investors to, so that they understand how it works and, and how, you, how you operate. And so we used everything from small dinners with maybe 100 to 150 people in the room at a time to receptions with a few dozen to one-on-one meetings uh, with, our, with our, our fundraising officers, myself, and our scholarship students and bring them out and let the students meet the supporters themselves and I'll tell you what, some amazing friendships have really developed uh, over the years between our supporters and the students they've supported. And it's, it's, it is so heartwarming and it's, um, it's just amazing to see. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, I was expecting you to say, well, we telemarketed them real hard and we uh, sent them three letters a week and, uh, and two emails a day. But um, uh, you 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 kind of took from this this larger venues to making it more intimate venues to get them to make that second care. That's a, that's right. Yeah, it was um, it, it was very. Um, I think that the personal touch was uh, was there throughout, and um, and we really targeted, or I shouldn't say targeted. We really worked with those investors who. Uh, were making significant contributions and who we thought uh, were inclined to make uh, bigger contributions and just gave them our time, gave them our attention. And uh, in return, they gave us uh, very generous contributions. How, Tom, how, how has the pandemic changed the way that you've fundraised over the last couple of years and what have you learned from it? Um, I don't, no, Andrew, I don't know that it has changed uh, our model all that much uh, because we've been, you know, we were reaching out by phone. Uh, obviously, we, we learned about this company called Zoom and, and had a whole lot of meetings on there. And um, I think the, I think probably where it had the biggest impacts is, is in those in-person living room meetings. Uh, obviously, there was a time when we couldn't travel and people were not opening their homes and 
Uh, we're just coming out of that, maybe beginning a few months ago, where folks are, are uh, a whole lot more confident and uh, receiving uh, people like us in their homes or in their uh, places of business. And, um, and so that was a little bit of a, a challenge to, to tell your story over, you know, as I said, our story is pretty intimate and it's personal. And um, so telling that over the phone or over a Zoom call was a little bit challenging, but it worked. People were open to it. Um, the other thing that we did during that whole pandemic is we made sure to reach out. And when you go back to, I think it was March of 2020, uh, where things were, were shutting down, uh, we reached out to all of the veterans that we uh, work with, all of our scholarship students and our supporters. And when I say reach out, I mean, made phone calls, made um, Zoom calls, um, sent emails, how are you doing? What's your situation? Are you getting through this? And we wanted to be sure to, to have that. With our supporters, we said, here's what we're gonna do. Um, and we, uh, we set a goal that we were going to renew the scholarships of every one of our students going back to school. We wanted to make, our, make it clear to our students that they had our support if their school was going to open up. Because if you remember, when the pandemic hit, college students were kicked off campus. They were told, um, pack your bags, go home, campus is closed. In some cases, they were coming back from spring break and uh, they weren't allowed back on campus even to get, get their thing. So they went home and there was a great deal of anxiety. There was a great deal of uncertainty. So one of the things we did was we made a commitment to our students that your scholarship is going to be funded if you are going to return to school in the fall of 2020. Now that allowed us to go to our supporters and say, we've made this commitment to our students and we want them to have the assurance that their college education is not gonna be impacted by anything Freedom Alliance is doing. So can you continue to help us out on that front? And uh, you probably heard this from other uh, organizations that you work with. Supporters, philanthropists were amazing during that period of time. They came through for military organizations and arts organizations and museums and uh, food banks and all kinds of organizations. As long as you reached out to them, touched base with them and told them, here's what we're facing, here's how we're dealing with it, and here's what our plan is going forward. Yeah, you're right. We, uh, it's amazing to me how generous and just how much American donors stepped up uh, during the pandemic. It's been really encouraging. Uh, Follow-up question for you, not, not pandemic-related really, but you, you've mentioned a couple of times the impact of the news cycle on your organization and your fundraising. Have you seen any meaningful change in giving or, or engagement with donors since the, the current administration's decision to, to leave Afghanistan and, and kind of the the... The, the media coverage around that, has that changed anything for you all or have, you, have your donors responded any differently because of that? Um, yeah, I think that is uh, that is a, a, a an event that has had a big impact in several areas, maybe a little less so on the donors, but uh, we saw it with our, our combat veterans and our scholarship students. Uh, remember, because these students, 
they've either lost a parent in military service or was wounded. So the way that we left Afghanistan had a big impact on them and the veterans um, to the point that it is, it's still there. It's still impacting them. And I suspect it will be for uh, many months to come with regard to uh, donors. The, um, the news cycle has had a big impact on donors, particularly direct response donors, um, lower dollar donors. When, uh, say, 2010, uh, 11, 12, in that time frame when we were leaving Iraq and as the war was not on the front pages anymore, you could see it was harder to um, acquire and keep smaller dollar donors. Now, for the uh, for the bigger donors, and we've got some terrific partners, uh, they're, they're going to stay with you. And they did for us. And they were very loyal and remain very loyal um, because they've invested so much and uh, they're not as impacted by the news cycle as our direct communication with them. Sure. But for the smaller donor where you are not able to have those uh, weekly phone calls or monthly phone calls, uh, that's, yeah, they're going to be a little bit more impacted, uh, a lot more impacted by the news cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. You know, it's, you touch on the smaller donors and obviously you've laid out a strong case for those high capacity donors, um, face-to-face engagement, small group engagement, um, event engagement, you know, where you're with them. Um, uh, with these smaller donors, of course, usually larger files, larger numbers, you can't give them that much intimacy, um, but you use direct response. Talk to me about that. Um, um, this would be interesting to know how you're integrating direct mail with your email communications. Yeah, Roy, we use at Freedom Alliance, we use uh, direct mail um, quite a bit, and we've had a great deal of success with it over the years. Now, I will say uh, it's interesting because the topic we're talking about, our scholarship program, uh, that is less reliant on the direct response and um, hasn't worked as well with the direct mail. Uh, so our scholarship program is uh, really funded a great deal and sustained by our larger partnerships. However, with the, the work I described earlier about helping combat veterans and uh, the work we do for them and, and some of the other programs we have, very much impacted by direct mail and supported and sustained by direct mail. Um, I wish I knew the answer as to why exactly that is, uh, but that that's the way but you're it is. right. It, it's so often, I think another nonprofit would say, ah, scholarships aren't working in the mail. So throw those out, you know, do this other thing. But, but you've really kind of crafted some unique offers. Um, you know, the buzzword I use is offer development. It's maybe a marketing term, but but identifying your needs and then and then tailoring your needs to the audience that is most receptive. That's that is really interesting. Yeah, and and it, the important thing here, I think, is you know, as we're talking to um, our, our brothers and sisters in the in the nonprofit sector, is bring bring the donors into your organization, and when they come in gradually and over time, help them understand first the program that they contributed to. And as you get to know them a little bit better, then introduce them to the other things that you do. And they, they might 
uh, you know, support uh, different projects, different programs, and eventually they'll just, uh, you know, be giving general operating support and, and general program support because each of the things that you do resonates with them and they feel strongly about it. So the important thing is to, is to bring them in and then work with them. And um, because in, in direct response, uh, you can't tell the donor everything that you're doing. And there's often a temptation to do that because, you know, we on the inside of the organization, we wouldn't be doing these things if we didn't feel strongly about it. We wouldn't be carrying out programs if they weren't effective and making a difference. And so you have so much pride in what you're doing uh, that you want to tell people, here's the, you know, 50 different right. things that we're doing. Put them under, put them under the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can't do it. So, uh, Choose the one that works best for that medium and, and recognize that one program may work best in direct response and a different program may work well in major dollars and a different program or a different approach to it might work better when you do events and find out what works and, and bring them in and take care of them. Well, and I think, you know, you made a good point earlier about the fact that your investors that give to your scholarship fund really like to ask a lot of questions, right? Yeah. I, I suspect that's part of why it doesn't work in the mail because there's not an ability for them to have a two-way conversation about it. So, so that would make some sense to me. Um, whereas some of the things that feel a little, maybe feel a little more urgent, feel a little more emotional, easier to grasp in 30 seconds, um, would might, you know, might work better on, in the mail or in an email. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But um, yeah, you're right. Because I remember you know, sitting down uh, with, with donors in their living room and it's, um, they're just curious, you know, there's, and, and there's a lot to understand about it. And so uh, they, they do have a lot of questions. And as you, as you give them more information, that just multiplies the number of, of questions they have. Not that they're uh, doubting or cynical, but they're interested and they're learning about a new topic. And, uh, and, and, you know, these are, these are people who've, uh, I think are curious by nature because they have many of them have run their own businesses. And so uh, they want to know what works, but just as importantly, they want to know what doesn't work and why so they can avoid it. So that brings up a, a really interesting uh, thought that, you know, so often charities, I think feel like they have to show the outside world that they're perfect, right. Or, or there's a belief, right. That we can't, can't talk about where we've made mistakes. We can't talk about things that haven't worked. But to your point, I mean, that's that kind of transparency is often what moves a relationship from sort of a arm's length to a very close where, where you know, I might write you a significant check um, because I now believe that you're really being honest with me. How, how have you navigated that risk of transparency? And, and what's your organization's perspective on that? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think, um, Andrew, the way I like to do it is, is to make myself personally available to the, to the donor, because a, a lot of it, I think, comes through in, in the Q&A and um, the, the way in which you answer the questions and the comprehensive nature of, of your answers. Um, and so you want to you want to help people to understand, you know, when, when you sit down and, and if you write a frequently asked questions 
uh, narrative on a piece of paper that you're going to post on your website, there's only so much of that that you can do. But if you if if you're willing to sit down with a supporter um, and, and spend an hour or or more, uh, then you're able to to answer all of their questions um, and and hopefully to their satisfaction, and just help them help them to understand why you don't do what um, do it the way they think it ought to be done. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you share that and you help people to see, you know, I, I realize some organizations may do it like this, or you've heard this, uh, or the popular narrative is X. Here's why we don't do it that way. In the end, they might not agree with you, but at least they know that you have analyzed it, you've thought it through, uh, you've made a different decision for whatever your reason is. And I think in most, if not all cases, they respect that. That makes good sense, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry, Roy, you might have a situation where and, I, and I've had it where you, you get to a point with a, with a supporter who says, I, I understand what you're doing and why you're doing it that way. I, I was really looking for something else, you know, to do it, maybe uh, something a little bit different or do the same thing in a little different way. And I'm, I'm going to give you a gift, but it's not what you were hoping for. And that's okay, too, because... Now you have an understanding and you have a mutual respect between the two of you that, um, and, it, and it allows you, if things change or a different program comes up, you can go back to that supporter and say, I know you didn't, um, you weren't fully on board with the way we did this project, but here's a project I think you might be interested in. And at least they will give you the opportunity to, um, to make your case. Um, so you just want to just, just keep that, that line of communication open. And in doing so, it's important to point out for managers and for, uh, major gift officers, you're going to learn something about the supporter. You might, uh, learn something in that conversation that as you're on the plane back home and you're thinking it through, you realize maybe we should do it that way or, or, you know, they've got a point and we can incorporate a part of it into what we're doing and that would make us stronger. So you're informing them, but you should always be open to uh, the fact that they've got information that you might not have, or they've got a perspective. And if you can understand your supporters better, your organization is going to be stronger. You've just illustrated something we talk about quite often in this broadcast, and that's stop pitching, (laughs) have a conversation. And I can't tell you how many nonprofits think that fund development is about arm twisting and pitching and PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) And, And you just walked us through the conversation, you know, and, 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 and listening to the donor. And, and that is just so important. I mean, to me, people that do that and use your approach, Tom, uh, they see, you know, many more five-figure and six-figure gifts. And those that pitch end up with much smaller gifts. Thoughts? Yeah, listen, listen, listen. Um, I, I don't know 
I think we're all saying it now. I don't know who's the first to Jerry Panis or Bill Sturdivant saying, listen, the gift, listen, the gift. And um, you have to pay attention to your supporters. They have got, uh, they have got passions. They've got causes to which they want to give, and they've got reasons for wanting to do so. And, uh, and they might even have a particular way of wanting to do it. So you've, you've got to uh, listen. You've got to enjoy being with them. Uh, you know, one of the, <clears throat> and, and just being curious and, and finding out who they are and what they're about. You know, when I go out and visit a, a supporter, one of the best questions I ever get is, well, Tom, would you like to see the factory floor or see the warehouse? And it's like, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, they, I, I love seeing how people make wealth. and. I always walk out saying, why couldn't I have thought of that? <laughs> um, but then what they do with it. And, and as they're walking you through uh, their place of business, they're going to tell you about their father who started the business or their grandmother who inspired it. Uh, they're going to introduce you to the receptionist who's been with them for 20 years and how proud they are of having um, offered those jobs in the community. And in hearing that and in learning that you learn about the person and what motivates them and what inspires them and what doesn't and and why they want to invest in your cause yeah it's uh we say it often here it's about the donor it's not about us right that's right mm. yeah and we've got um and you know we're seeing it now there's when 9-11 hit that was that was an attack on our country. It was an attack on New York City and Washington and, and would have been um, the capital, uh, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. But it was, it was an attack on so many people personally, those who served, those who didn't serve, those who had worked in uh, the financial industry previously. And that stayed with them. And they wanted to do something about it. And I think one of the that was a, a tragic day and a terrible time for the last 20 years, but some, there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. And I think one of the good things is many uh, new organizations that support military families. Um, you know, we've had the benefit of working with a number of them and developing strong partnerships where we're able. Uh, and the other thing is the, um, the tremendous philanthropy that has been invested in patriotic causes um, by so many wonderful people who just want to show their support for uh, our troops, for our intelligence personnel, for those who uh, serve our country in a variety of different ways. And, um, and, and they have invested a great deal. And it's important because, you know, Roy, as we go back to uh, the first part of our conversation, what the government does and what the government doesn't do. When it comes to military families and veterans, there is more the government can do. But I'm not of the belief that the government can do it all. There is a vital role for small nonprofits because as I've talked about, we deal on a very personal basis. When you're, when you're trying to help a veteran uh, overcome emotional injuries because of what they saw in combat, and the atrocities that they have witnessed, that's, that can't be done on the VA conveyor belt. That's one-on-one. -on -one. Those are long phone conversations. 
Those are conversations that go to one to two o'clock in the morning um, and very heart to heart. So they're the, the military support part of the NGO community has become a vital component of our national defense, especially in these last 20 years. I believe that very strongly. I don't know that the folks in Washington fully understand that or fully appreciate it, but we have uh, made it clear, whether you're talking the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Gary Sinise Foundation, Freedom Alliance, Johnny Mac Soldiers Fund, you know, so many that we have worked with, they are vital to ensuring that military families get the support that they need. Wow, Tom, it, it just about covered it all. And even throwing out some support to some of your peers in this space, you just just so amaze me. And and the uh, the approach that that uh, that you take, um, your temperament, um, just the way in this conversation, how you put. Um, Others first. It just says something about you and it says something about Freedom Alliance. And we appreciate you. We have listeners that, that want to reach you, want to support Freedom Alliance. How do they do that? Well, the best way, Roy, is through our um, website at freedomalliance.org. And our Facebook page uh, does a pretty good job of compiling our, our day to day activities. So we're at uh, Facebook slash Freedom Alliance. Um, the website, freedomalliance.org, has an application on there that veterans can uh, fill out and we'll take a look and see what's the best way to help them, what kind of support they need. We have our, our Christmas program coming up and um, so many other events. I was just down in Nashville at the, um, at the Ryman Auditorium giving away an all-terrain wheelchair. And that was one of the coolest things I've, I've done uh, just because you know, being on stage uh, there where so many musical greats have been, but also to be with a fantastic female veteran who made history in standing up the female engagement teams and, uh, and helping her with improve her mobility. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's very inspiring. And, and I hope uh, anybody who's listening who'd like to invest with our cause will visit our website or, or check out our Facebook page and, and we welcome your support. And, um, and I want to thank you and, and Andrew again, Roy, for all that you do in helping um, organizations to understand how to how to work with supporters. And uh, and and I see your blog and, and your your spot on in, in the way you approach this. We are honored. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, One Hundred and One Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.